Welcome, everyone, to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing fantastic, man. It is beautiful and sunny in San Francisco. Great day to be corona inside. It is also really sunny out here in Seattle. It's been like that for the past like three days. I actually have a tan uh, because I keep on just walking outside uh, all the time, which I highly recommend because that's like the only activity we can do right now. Been doing a lot of shirt off on the roof. It's fantastic. And the other thing that's fantastic is this interview. Our good friend Jake Trevinsky came on and uh, spent some time to explain a lot of different topics around crypto and decentralized network laws. Jake was nice enough to answer our questions. Before we get into the interview, though, let's talk about our sponsors. First is eToro. eToro is the best one-stop shop for everything crypto. Again, Bitcoin, Ethereum, any of your favorite cryptos are going to be there, and you're going to be able to invest in them the way that you like. For me, it's stacking stats and pulling it off the exchange. For other people, it might be in, it might be index investing or copy trading or just an active strategy strategy in general eToro lets you do it all. They have the best tools. They have the best services and some of the best rates. Check them out at b.tc backslash eToro POV. Again, that is b.tc backslash eToro POV. Thanks. There is only one smart contract auditing firm that has millions and millions of dollars flowing through contracts that they audit personally. And that smart contract auditing firm is Quantstamp. Quantstamp has the most extensive history auditing contracts on Ethereum and other crypto protocols. Their list of previous clients is absolutely insane. MakerDAO, Pool Together, Ardai, Sablier, all the, all the good stuff that we all know and love. Uh, if you have used DeFi applications on Ethereum, then you have probably used an application that Quantstamp has audited. If you are building something in crypto, if you are building an application on Ethereum that manages users' funds, you, it's your responsibility to make sure that you are keeping users' funds safe. If you do not feel confident that you can do that yourself, go to expertaudits.com and get your contract audited by the best in the industry. Thanks, Quantstamp, for sponsoring POV. I really enjoyed this episode with Jake. Jake is a, a, a friend of the podcast, so that's pretty cool. Uh, but the conversation about legal and blockchains uh, is really, a, really a, a very deep conversation because these two systems are, are basically committed until the end of time to be at least somewhat adversarial towards each other. They are competing sets of rules and laws. Um, maybe they don't compete 100%, but crypto... And, and code is law is not necessarily exactly how uh, nation states and governments um, treat laws and treat regulations. And so this is always a good conversation to have. And, and Jake, who's the general counsel from Compound, is, is just at the bleeding edge of understanding these things and keep, uh, providing context for, for the current state of the state versus blockchain uh, legal dilemma. Yeah, and I also think it's just really refreshing to get Jake's take. I think a lot of people in this space come from a more libertarian or technology perspective, and Jake really understands how uh, you know how law in the United States works and how it you know how it can be changed and how it can be nimble 
to reflect, you know, what the people want. So at times I actually felt like I was arguing the status perspective and he was arguing for free and open source software, but um, he really is in it for the right reasons. And he brings an extremely nuanced perspective, uh, which, you know, is very necessary. But without further ado, let's get right into it. Jake Trevinsky. Hi, everyone. This is Jake Trevinsky, today's guest on POV Crypto. Before we jump in, a quick disclaimer. I had a great time on the show giving my personal views on a range of legal issues facing the crypto industry, but nothing I said was intended as legal advice or a statement representing the company where I work. Thanks for listening. I hope you like it. Jake Shervinsky, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for coming on the pod. Yeah, thanks for having me. Jake, uh, can you give a little bit of a background in the space, what you are doing, what you are up to, and why you resonate with crypto or, or why you came to be here? Sure. Um, so I am general counsel for Compound Labs, the developer of the Compound Protocol. Um, I uh, spent a few years before I joined Compound doing some work in the space. So before Compound, I was working at a law firm called Cobre & Kim. Uh, which is a litigation boutique focused on disputes and investigations where I was doing a lot of securities-related uh, litigation and government enforcement defense in the crypto space. Uh, so I've been working in this space for probably about two and a half or three years now. Um, I guess th the reason I'm into crypto, and, and by that really I mean Bitcoin and Ethereum, which maybe we'll, we'll get into a bit, but... Um, you know, I, I first got into this really because I spent a lot of time working for and also litigating cases against very large financial institutions, so legacy incumbents in the finance industry. And I guess you could, could describe my outlook on them as somewhat similar to the Occupy Wall Street movement, right? I became a lawyer uh, just after the global financial crisis. You know, I spent most of my time in law school watching all of these law firms laying off friends of mine and, you know, pulling offers from them and, and you know, watching all of the big banks acting in what I felt was a really um, inappropriate way. I mean, they had caused extraordinary damage to the economy. And unfortunately, the consequence of that for them was, was basically non-existent. Um, there were a couple of really small fines. No one was really punished. And the finance industry just kept rolling along the way that it had been. And so when I really came across Bitcoin and, and then Ethereum, what it looked like to me was an engineering solution to this intractable political problem, right? The, the runaway power and, um, you know, really inability of the government to, to reel in the misconduct and malfeasance in the finance industry. And I thought, you know, if the law isn't going to address this, if politics isn't going to address this, then maybe the engineers can address this. And Bitcoin to me seemed like it was perfectly designed uh, to disrupt the banks. And that's really what, what got me into this in the first place. Um, you know, from there, I've gotten interested in a whole bunch of different things going on in this space. Um, and, and, you know, when I decided I really wanted to focus my career on crypto and, you know, really couldn't see myself working on cases that didn't have some aspect of, of this industry to it. I thought, you know, I really want to find a project building something new and really interesting and somewhere that I can really apply the skill set that I've developed working in Washington, D.C. 
Um, and so, you know, for me, Compound was that job and I've, I've been loving it uh, ever since I joined last year. So you are in a very interesting place uh, in, the, in, the, in this grand scheme of things where you are a lawyer uh, for a DeFi protocol. And this, this whole crypto revolution is about re, reorganizing or redefining what, what is law, right? Because if you take from the perspective, the inside of a blockchain, the inside of Ethereum, the inside of Bitcoin, the, the idea of code is law. Uh, and so if, if you are the Ethereum protocol, you do not care what the laws of America are or the laws of any particular gov uh, country. Uh, and, but, but you, Jake, are a lawyer where, where your job is to care about that, where you are also straddling the, the world of DeFi, the world of decentralized finance. How, how has that story unfolded for you? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm not sure I totally agree, actually, with with your description um, and with the whole code is law concept. You know, I think it's sort of a nice idea, but in the end, I don't think code is law um, necessarily works the way that some people hope that it does. I think what you have to remember is that while the technology functions without relying on the legal system and is designed for that purpose, that doesn't mean that we, individuals who are using that system, are somehow immune to the jurisdiction of governments that want to impose their laws on us. So, you know, while the technology itself may run just as it's designed, no matter what a government or a court or a lawyer says, the people who are using the protocol, right, the companies that are building on it, the people who are doing commerce on it, um, you know, even your uh, your Bitcoin hodlers who aren't really doing much other than holding Bitcoin, all of those people are still subject to the jurisdiction of whatever country they live in. So, you know, I think, um, I, I think that there is as much a need for lawyers in this space as there is in any other because, you know, I work for a company based in San Francisco. We're a Delaware corporation. Um, and, you know, just like you guys uh, have companies in the U.S., the fact that you work with cryptocurrencies doesn't mean that you're somehow immune from from the law. So, you know, I think um, I think if anything, because there is so much uncertainty about how the laws apply to this type of new technology, there's even more need for lawyers in, in this space than in most others. So, I think for me, it was it was a pretty um, it was a pretty easy transition, especially from the type of work that I was doing uh, into this kind of work. So Jake, when you when you said you're you're here mainly for Bitcoin and Ethereum, I'm curious, like, what do you make of this space, and what's kind of like your journey to getting to where you are, or your viewpoint right now? Yeah, um, what I make of the space is, well, first of all, it's it's really fun. I mean, I think um, you know we get really wrapped up in, in a lot of the uh, the legalities and uh, you know all the issues in the space, but I, I think that at its heart. This is a really fun, fast-paced, creative, innovative, and exciting space to work in. Um, I, I think that uh, for me, um, Bitcoin is and always will be sort of my first love in the space. I think that Bitcoin is the truest and best representation of what a decentralized 
currency can and should be, right? Bitcoin is a monetary experiment. And I think everything that we're doing in this space is still an experiment. I think most people who are working on Bitcoin would, would admit that it, it is still in an experimental phase. But Bitcoin is basically the best and most secure attempt to separate money from state, right? And that's a really important thing, I think, for, for all of us. And we're seeing that play out now. Uh, with the, the government's response to the economic crisis because of the coronavirus. Um, I think that, you know, the need to separate money from state is is greater than ever before. Um, I think the, that where I may differ from a lot of Bitcoiners is that I also think that what's being done on Ethereum is extremely exciting and extremely important. I think the, the risk that I see with a Bitcoin-only world, and this is something that I, I know you guys have talked to some other guests about, um, especially Nick Carter, who I, I think you guys did a great job interviewing recently, is the rise of centralized intermediaries in the Bitcoin ecosystem, right? So where, where all the Bitcoin protocol can do is allow us to exchange value, right? I send Bitcoin to you, you send Bitcoin to me, we hold our Bitcoin, but not much more than that. It requires us then to reintroduce the same types of centralized third parties that we have in the traditional system. So Nick Carter talks about Bitcoin banks, right? This is a pretty popular concept. I would like to avoid a world where we need to centralize all of our Bitcoins in banks. I think that's a recipe for the exact same problems that we've had in the traditional system that we're trying to work our way out of. And so I think that Ethereum is in, in many ways uh, a different project. It's an attempt to replace more of the finance industry, more of the financial system than just money. It's an attempt to create as many decentralized protocols as possible so that we don't need to defer to those types of, of financial institutions anymore. And that's why I think both projects have merit and both are, are very interesting and worth pursuing. Which makes you a, a great guest for POV crypto, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So um, maybe before we get into the, the nitty gritty details, uh, can you kind of give us a very high level sit rep as to the current state of law and crypto? Uh, me and Christian, when we were planning out this episode, we, we were kind of talking about the difference between crypto law and DeFi law, where crypto law is kind of laws surrounding Bitcoin, uh, which I would generally classify as more mature and solidified and stable versus DeFi law, which is very unanswered and nebulous and has a, has a per, perhaps a lot more thought-provoking questions. There's a lot, been a lot of things that have happened in crypto law, mainly Bitcoin law, uh, that are that are have uh, there are more answered questions. Uh, do you accept? Do you agree with that? And then, how would you just classify, or how would you give us a, a what's the sit rep of law and crypto in general? Sure. I, in general, I, I do agree. I guess the way I would phrase it is, Bitcoin law is a subset of crypto law. Mm -hmm. Right. The the legal issues that um, people who are only working on Bitcoin or who are only using Bitcoin have to deal with is the same, right? The same issues as someone who's working in the DeFi space or working on other crypto projects. It's just those other projects have a huge number of other issues that are not implicated by Bitcoin alone. Um, mostly that has to do with the securities laws, uh, which are enforced by the SEC here in the U.S., 
Um, there are some other issues around the Bank Secrecy Act, so the anti-money laundering and know your customer regulations. Um, there's you know, also some issues around the Commodity Exchange Act, which is enforced by the CFTC here in the U.S., that tend to come up more uh, outside of the Bitcoin context. But I guess that's how I would view it. You know, it, it's all sort of the same, but Bitcoin doesn't have quite so many sticky issues anymore uh, as some other projects and especially Ethereum-based projects. In terms of a, a sit rep, that's a really hard question, right? Because mm -hmm. basically what you're asking is, how do the laws apply to finance? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there are lawyers who specialize in very narrow areas of laws applying to the finance industry where, you know, you might have a lawyer whose entire career is dedicated only to navigating the Investment Company Act of 1940, which is just one of many securities laws, and they don't really touch on, on anything else. And so it's, you know, it's really hard to say in general how all of these different frameworks are, are applying uh, to crypto broadly. I, I guess what I would say is um, we're starting to work through some of the most important and pressing questions uh, around the issues that matter most for adoption. And I think, you know, I do think that ultimately adoption is what we're moving toward, right? The question is whether people can use this technology and how they can use it. So we're, we're getting some clarity around the anti-money laundering laws. Um, we're starting to get some clarity around the tax laws, which are, are definitely very important. Um, you know, moving outside of Bitcoin, we're, we're starting to get some clarity on how the Howey test applies to tokens that may or may not qualify as securities. Um, so we're making progress, but we're still really far away from, from knowing enough both about how the laws apply generally, and also how the government is going to try enforcing those laws in this space. Very far away from having enough clarity that, that we can say, you know, all clear and everyone should just jump in with both feet. Uh, and I think you see that with the hesitance of large institutions, some of which we do want to get involved in this space, their reluctance to really jump in. Um, you know, they are the most risk averse players um, in, in many ways, you know, it's not until JP Morgan decides that they're going to start, you know, custodying Bitcoin uh, that we can say really all clear with Bitcoin. And I think we're pretty far away from that. I guess like the only other thing that I would that would, I would want to add on to is like if you could go deeper into um, how you think adoption is going to be um, affected by laws that are in the pipeline or, or actions that are in the pipeline. So look, I think there's a couple different things. I think there's the question whether ordinary people like you and me or my parents or, you know, your friends, whoever, um, feel comfortable getting into this space and whether they have uh, easy access through fiat on-ramps to get into the space, right? That we're pretty far on, right? I think um, we have a lot of fairly well-respected exchanges here in the U.S., that people can feel pretty comfortable sending money to, you know, the Coinbase's of the world. Um, I think, you know, then you have to ask whether you're going to get adoption where it's not just us making the decision to become customers of Coinbase, but rather a pension plan deciding to hold Bitcoin for pensioners or a trust deciding to hold Bitcoin for trustees um, or, you know, uh, businesses deciding to do commerce with Bitcoin or things of that nature. 
that I think is a lot slower because those uh, types of entities are a lot more concerned about compliance. And there are still some big unanswered questions about how they can comply with a, a number of different laws, mostly focused on the anti-money laundering laws. Uh, the travel rule has become a, a fairly significant issue recently. Um, but also, you know, there's a reputation issue that I think we still haven't overcome. I think a lot of people who are not active in this space or don't know a lot about it still think that all of what we're doing is a giant scam, right? I still hear lawyers who don't know about crypto say, Bitcoin, isn't that just a Ponzi scheme? And I think until we get past that hurdle, it's, it's going to be a while before we see bigger players adopting this technology. Historically, governments and, and legal systems have classified as, as slow and blunt. Um, and so when it comes to f creating and forming laws, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people like, like me are not optimistic that the laws that are going to be created surrounding crypto are not going to be taken with a very informed decision or, or a crypto first perspective. Um, and so it, I see two, two possible futures and then, and then a range between those two where, um, where governments and laws don't budge and then crypto has to conform to that or vice versa, where governments and laws do budge and, and conform to crypto. And then, and then there's some spectrum in between. Um, and so like, in my opinion, if, if uh, if crypto becomes like 100% compliant and we still have the same laws that we have today, then crypto has failed and this is boring and the whole point of this is is kind of ruined. The idea is that the the current laws are not appropriate for current crypto technology. Um, what, what's your opinion on that and what's your stance on that? Like, do you are you optimistic that the government can or or the legal system can? pivot in, an, in a way that doesn't neuter these systems? I'm very optimistic. Um, I'm mostly optimistic because it's been done before, right? I, I think it's important to remember while many aspects of this technology are brand new and revolutionary, this is not the first time there's been a new revolutionary technology that the laws have had to adapt to, right? So even in our lifetimes, we've seen the rise of the internet, which went from basically uh, useful for universities and academics, but otherwise just a toy, to becoming the foundation of all commerce in the world. And the laws had to change to allow that to happen. I, I think you're right that it happens very slowly and it doesn't always happen smoothly. So certainly there have been a lot of issues adapting the laws to deal with the internet and, and there still are many issues. We're still fighting about encryption even today. Um, and you know, it takes a lot of time, but I, I think that it's important to remember that the law is designed to facilitate coordination between people, right? The law follows the business that we're doing. And just like with the internet, where, you know, the laws had to adapt because people wanted to be on the internet. They wanted to do commerce through the internet. They wanted to sign contracts through the internet, right? All, all of these kinds of things. The law will have to adapt because people will want to use Bitcoin and, uh, you know, hopefully Ether and, and other, uh, you know, other crypto networks, or at least protocols. Um, so I, I am optimistic about that. I think, you know, one thing also to point out is you mentioned passing new laws. You know, I think that that's actually the end of the process. I, and I think that where it starts and where we are right now 
is just educating regulators and lawmakers on what this technology is. We're still in that phase. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of people here in D.C. doing a great job of that. Uh, Coin Center has been fantastic. Uh, the Blockchain Association now is doing, I think, for Ethereum, what the Coin Center has done for Bitcoin in, in terms of education. But, you know, before you get to passing new laws, you have to you have to get some education done on the Hill. And that's really still where we are. And then, you know, the intermediate step between those two points is interpreting the laws that are already on the books and figuring out what still makes sense, what can apply to this technology just like it did to the old financial system and not jumping to trying to write new legislation that's never been tested before. And I think we're, we're doing that too. We're figuring out, you know, how do the securities laws apply? How do the commodities laws apply? And we're not yet to the point of even knowing what kinds of new laws we might need, if any. So in 2017 and then in 2018, when I you actually got on my radar, I thought that kind of like the legal atmosphere around crypto was frankly annoying. It was really just like, is this a security? Is this not a security? And almost always it seemed like it was a, a dubious thing. Uh, but now that we're out of like the ICO bubble and you know we're kind of getting into this point where there's actually non-custodial or even kind of gray lines around different applications that are um, allowing people to, you know, access different finance, access different payment routes through Lightning, uh, access to exchange through different decentralized exchanges. The question of our coders fiduciaries kind of comes into play. And I think that this is like now crypto law is getting much, much more interesting with, you know, all this other stuff happening. Yeah. Um, so let me let me frame the question uh, first. So there's this long running argument about whether coders are fiduciaries, meaning do coders owe some duty to the users of the software that the coders have produced beyond what an ordinary person would owe to someone else? So, you know, in the ordinary context, we all, and this is uh, just a matter of common law in the U.S., we all owe a duty of reasonable care to each other, right? We have to act in a way that a, an ordinary person who is reasonably prudent would act. And if we don't, we can be sued for negligence. That's sort of the basis of tort law in the US. The classification of a fiduciary duty basically says that because of a special relationship between two parties, one party owes greater than just that duty of care to the other. And so the question you know, now comes up in the crypto context because some people will argue that the developers of a decentralized protocol uh, like Bitcoin or Ethereum or uh, DeFi protocols on top of Ethereum have that type of special relationship with the users of the protocol. And therefore, they should owe those extra fiduciary duties to, to the users. Um, I think that's absolutely wrong. Uh, you know, I, I understand where it comes from because whenever money is involved, uh, people are looking for the law to protect them in one way or another. And that's a very important and reasonable feeling. The problem is the law around fiduciary duties doesn't make any sense in the context of a crypto network. So, you know, the, the typical examples of a fiduciary is the officer or director of a corporation, um, your lawyer, uh, the trustee of a trust, right? People who... You have, you have created an agency relationship with, meaning you have either given them 
your assets and you are allowing them to decide what to do with your assets, or you have given them the authority to bind you to contracts, right, in the, in the uh, context of shareholders and the directors of a corporation, right, the directors have the authority to bind the corporation. Uh, that's why there's a fiduciary duty there. Uh, with lawyers, right, if I represent you in court, I can file paperwork on your behalf and I can bind you based on, on that agency relationship. None of this applies in the context of an open protocol where users opt in, right? All of this is on an opt-in basis. Uh, the protocols I'm aware of, at least, are, are non-custodial. I mean, I think to call something DeFi or really to call it crypto to begin with, it has to be non-custodial, right? Self-sovereignty is, to me, a core characteristic of this technology. And all of it is openly transparent and auditable, right? You can see all of the code running on chain. So there's nothing that someone else knows that you don't. Uh, there's no trust that you're putting in someone to dispose of your assets or bind you by contract. So I think the idea of a fiduciary duty being the right way to protect users is, is just legally incorrect. I definitely understand what you're saying, and I tend to agree most of the time, but uh, I don't think that everything that's labeled DeFi is actually decentralized. And there are contracts out there where you know, there's a spectrum of control of the contract holder over funds that are, are input. So I do think that there are examples where uh, some of these coders and things that are quote unquote masquerading to be decentralized or somewhere on the spectrum, um, you know, they, they could be found uh, to have had a fiduciary uh, position. So I agree that not all of what people call DeFi is fully decentralized today. I actually, um, I kind of hate the term DeFi. I only use it because everyone else does. So I, I feel like we've kind of given up on calling it anything else. Um, I do think that it's sort of a confusing term and lumps in a whole lot of stuff together. It doesn't really belong in the same conversation. Sure, it's so not decentralized. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I guess a couple of things. First of all, nothing is, is completely decentralized or completely not, right? Decentralization is a spectrum. And the question is, can you figure out to what extent you are trusting a third party for one thing or another? Where do you fall on that spectrum? Um, I didn't say that decentralization is necessarily why a fiduciary duty wouldn't apply. I think it's the custodial aspect, the non-custodial aspect of these protocols that is one reason of many why a fiduciary duty should not apply. You get to decide for, for most protocols I'm familiar with, and you know, if there's others, um, then you know, feel free to, to jump in, but you decide whether you want to supply assets, to, to lock assets in a smart contract. You decide if you want to withdraw them. You know more or less how they're going to be treated. To the extent that you have some trust in a third party, like uh, a token holder who is voting through a decentralized governance system, um, that is an open and transparent process, ideally, where you know what's going on. And if you don't like how the protocol is being governed, then you withdraw your assets and you move on to the next protocol. You know, I also think it, it's, it's important to think about what the impact would be of applying fiduciary duties, what they actually do, right? So most fiduciary duties fall into a few categories. There's the duty of care, which is very similar to this duty 
to act with reasonable care, to act competently. Then there's the duty of loyalty, which says that the fiduciary has to act in the best interest of the person with whom they have the fiduciary relationship, as opposed to their own best interest. So this comes up in the corporate context where, for example, uh, a, a corporate director decides to sign a contract with their own other company, right, to, to, to profit them for themselves as opposed to, to seek the best interest of the shareholders. It's called self-dealing. That's really not something that can happen with these kinds of protocols. Um, the, you know, the incentives of the developers and the users are aligned in a way that they might not be in the types of fiduciary relationships that we see in a typical context. So the, the transparency of these systems you, you cite as really important. So because blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum are inside out systems that everyone has the same access to information, then that gives some sort of uh, or remove some sort of responsibility from people that are perhaps advertising to, to deposit your assets into this contract. Is that a fair statement? Um, I wouldn't go that far. I think I actually think advertising or marketing is a pretty big issue. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think you know the fact that it's opt in is important because the user has access or should have access to all the same information as the developer or the coder, right? All they have Mm -hmm. to do is look on chain and they'll be able to see how the smart contract is going to function. I think where some teams get in trouble is when they start advertising and they start either making incorrect statements or or leaving out information Mm -hmm. when they're trying to convince people that they should use a certain protocol or another. So I actually think once you get to the world of advertising, you're sort of changing the calculus in terms of the user's access to information, right? You're sending a different message than just mm-hmm. look on chain and figure out what, you know, how the smart contract is going to function. So at the very beginning of what you just said, you said that the developers and the users have access to the same information. Like in theory, that's true. The, the same information is available. However, I have used like the I have used the majority of DeFi protocols. I've gone to the websites of you know Compound, MakerDAO, Uniswap, etc. Uh, but I'm not a coder, and it doesn't even matter that I have access to that same information. I can't even interpret it, and I have just totally trusted the front end UI of these applications that they are going to do the same things that. The, the things that they say that they are going to do. So while the information is freely accessible, the ability or skill set to interpret that information is not equally uh, distributed or dispersed among developers versus users. Does that change the calculus? Um, it's a really important point. I don't think it changes the calculus so much because I, I don't think it's that different from the traditional finance system, right? So when you open a bank account or you open an account with Robinhood or some other fintech company, right, a securities brokerage, you're going to get a whole long list of disclosures in eight-point font, in gray text that you can barely read. You're going to get pages and pages and pages of terms and conditions. My favorite. Drafted by lawyers. Yeah, it's fun, right? You, do, I mean, do you read those? Because I don't. Every day. And I'm a lawyer. <laughs> And I will tell you that one of the funny things, this is sort of a um, sort of a hidden secret of these terms and conditions, is that lawyers are actually intentionally trying to write these to be hard to understand, 
right? Lawyers are actually pretty good writers if they want to be. If they want to make these things clear, they can. But a lot of these disclosures are written to be legally effective, but also so boring that you will never actually read what the disclosures say. And so, you know, I think that's not that different from from being able to look on chain and see how a smart contract functions. I am not a computer scientist or an engineer. I also can't really read the code of these protocols. But I think what's important is your consent based on the information available to you, right? And this is, this is sort of an important aspect of tort law as well. Um, so we've been talking about this duty of reasonable care that we all have for each other. Well, one of the aspects of, of how that law functions is the idea of assumption of risk or contributory negligence, right? When you decide to do something that is risky, as long as you have access to the information you need to make an informed decision, you assume the risk of whatever that activity is. Um, you know, think about when you join a gym. There's going to be a contract you have to sign, and it says you assume the risk of injuring yourself using this equipment. It's dangerous to use this equipment, right? This is part of every gym contract. Um, and similarly, even where there isn't a formal contract that is signed, you can have assumption of risk. So a, a really typical example of this is with trespassing on someone else's property, right? If you trespass on someone else's property, you are basically assumed to be taking on the risk of whatever hurts you on their property, right? You go into an abandoned building, well, guess what? You're the idiot who went into the abandoned building. If the stairs collapse on you, it's your own fault. And I think that the same idea applies here, which is it's up to you to decide what risk you wanna take on. This, these systems are opt-in. If you decide to use a protocol knowing that you don't understand how it works, knowing that if you did some diligence, you could figure it out, but you're not going to because you feel like it's too complicated or you don't want to, then you're assuming the risk of, of being involved in that financial activity. So I think there's a good place to actually transition because, again, I, I, while what you're saying may be technically true, I do think that there's, when I look at the DeFi landscape, I see a lot of teams that are doing kind of like legally questionably things or questionable things and yet they're very public. They are located in jurisdictions that um, may, be, uh, may be like against them. They're not trying to use any sort of like, uh, I guess, anonymity in, in their building their application. I know that this is not the, the law for DeFi, but it is the case for a lot of DeFi projects. When you look at like the DeFi landscape, do you see that this landscape is like safe and robust from, you know, political attacks or... Or, or even government attacks, or do you do you kind of see this landscape as uh, being relatively robust from a legal perspective and a compliance perspective? I think it's well. First of all, I think it's very smart to differentiate between the technical legal argument and the policy considerations, and then separately the practical considerations of how you know how regulators or legislators may view this space. Um, no, I absolutely do not think that DeFi, or frankly Bitcoin for that matter, is immune from attack by a government that wants to take it down. Um, you know, I think that there will always be some element of this technology that survives no matter what the U.S. government says. So don't get me wrong, I don't think that the U.S. government can take down Bitcoin tomorrow. But I think that, first of all, 
if the government wanted to take these systems down, they would find a legal justification to do that. I don't think, frankly, it would be that hard. Um, I, I think, uh, to, to give you a very concrete example, uh, I think that the Treasury Department, through FinCEN, which is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, could decide to interpret the Bank Secrecy Act in a way that says every miner of Bitcoin or Ethereum is a money transmitter, and all of them are unregistered, and therefore mining Bitcoin is illegal without registration. That would be a preposterous theory. But could the government take that position, and would they at least survive some challenge? Is it at least plausible? Yes, I, I think it is. And I think the reason they haven't done that is partly thanks to the extraordinary work of folks like Jerry Brito and Peter Van Valkenburg and their colleagues at Coin Center, you know, other people who have done education to explain not only why that would be an unintelligent legal position to take, why it would be subject to challenge at least, but also why they shouldn't take that view, right? Why this technology is not a threat to the government, why they shouldn't want to shut it down, why instead they should support innovation and they should support what I view basically as an upgrade on the technology of money. So, you know, I think that's really what matters most is not necessarily so much advancing these hyper-technical legal arguments, but rather making the policy arguments that the government should not come after this technology, even though uh, in theory, I think it could. Comparing any just any run-of-the-mill DeFi project to Bitcoin's robustness is not exactly a fair comparison. Um, you know, and then in the case where, you know, Bitcoin miners were found to be uh, illegal money transmitters, even in that case, like it would that's not the end of the Bitcoin network. You know, just making it illegal is not the end. Right. Uh, so the, like Bitcoin itself, maybe Ethereum, uh, some other decentralized chains actually are, you know, a robust decentralized network of computers, uh, which uh, I mean is beneficial to them. But not every project building on in this space is in that in that situation. Like looking at these like kind of more again DeFi projects, you can even look at BISC. BISC is uh, at least somewhat decentralized, but they have a DAO. They have some sort of control over trading, um, so it doesn't have to be built on Ethereum. Like looking at these other kind of projects where there are known founders, known people building on top of them. Like what kind of risks do they face by uh, by kind of building money protocols? Yeah. Um... So I, I agree with you, and I think I think the distinction is just uh, which regulatory frameworks the government would invoke to go after the protocol or the people who have built or are using the protocol, and the likelihood that the government will do that, uh, and also the strength of the policy argument against doing that. So, um, so you know, I gave you the example of miners being viewed as money transmitters, which, you know, just in case anyone is going to start yelling at me about this, I do not think is accurate and I do not think will happen. But similarly, you could imagine the SEC going after uh, decentralized exchanges, right, to say that they are subject to the federal securities laws in the same way that FinCEN could argue that miners are subject to the federal anti-money laundering laws. Now, I think there's potentially a better argument that the SEC could advance to say that some of the tokens that are trading on Ethereum, right, not on Bitcoin, on Ethereum, are unregistered securities. And to have a decentralized exchange protocol uh, that facilitates the trading of those securities 
violates the 1934 Act, the Exchange Act. Um, I still think that there are very strong arguments against that, and I think that you know then we we get into a much more nuanced discussion about distinguishing between the developers of a protocol and the protocol itself, right? So you know what you could say is those regulations should apply to the protocol, but can you also say that they should apply to the developer of the protocol if the developer no longer has control over it? Um, much harder uh, to, to sort of square that that type of concept. Um, so you know, I think it's sort of all, you know all in, in in many ways it's all one and the same. It's just a question of which laws and and which types of protocols uh, and you know what the policy considerations are. So to pivot the conversation a little bit, I kind of want to take a step back and then and then go really granular afterwards. But just as a, maybe a reminder as to why do DeFi teams or crypto teams in general, why do they need to follow the law? Um, and this, the answer for you know most of these teams that are inside the United States is obvious, right? Because it's like, well, to not go to jail. But a lot of DeFi teams or DeFi applications or whatever are international, or or they can easily become like pseudo anonymous. Or like, for example, the Tornado Cash team is in Russia. And, you know, laws are bound to a specific part of the world where the internet and blockchain systems are not. So, and, and especially when it comes down to the fact that, like, the more compliant you are, the harder it is to get your, your startup up and running and profitable and, and your application, you know, successful. And so, like, maybe, maybe you can pitch for these, you know, these teams that are perhaps considering, you know, not not operating inside the United States, why they should be compliant or follow the law. And also why do we, whose laws do we have to choose? Great question. So I, you know, for starters, I think, um, I think most people think of compliance as only a bad thing, right? As regulation is only a bad thing. That's I, not really how I view it. You know, I think that um, most, if not all, regulations at least start from a good place, right? The goal of good regulation is to ensure an equal playing field and to make sure that there isn't systemic risk and misconduct, right? To protect customers and consumers and users of products and, and in this case, protocols. I think the main reason why you want to be compliant is if there's a reason why the regulation should apply to the type of work that you're doing, then you should comply because it'll make your product better. It'll make your project or protocol better if you are compliant. Um, think about this in, in uh, the context of margin trading and leverage, right? U.S. regulations in general prohibit 100 times leverage trading. The reason for that is because it's basically just gambling. And it's probably not something that most people should be engaged in. So I think you would want to comply with that regulation because it's the right thing to do. And I think that that concept applies fairly broadly. Um, I also think that, uh, you know, you can't escape the fact that most people don't want to break the law. And we talked earlier a little bit about adoption. You know, if we want people like our parents or, you know, those who are not as cypherpunk perhaps as we are to get involved in this space, then we need the government to at least not call everything we're doing illegal. We have to be able to show uh, the, the 
proper compliance with the laws that apply to the institutions that those people trust, right? There's a lot of people who don't want to create an account at Coinbase. They want to buy a Bitcoin ETF, or they want to get exposure through the financial institution they already have a relationship with. Well, in order to get there, you have to comply with the laws that, that apply in the U.S. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think that the U.S. still has the best and most liquid and most efficient capital markets in the world. I think that if your goal is to do any less than comply with U.S. law, you're unlikely to see broad adoption. There's some projects that that doesn't matter for, right? Not everyone is going for mass adoption. And I think there's a really interesting and valid argument that we don't need everyone to have Bitcoin. And, you know, I think that's sort of a separate question. But for those of us who are interested in bringing this technology to the greatest number of people, compliance is a must. So what is your take on, you know, businesses that are really playing the the the, the geographical and regulatory arbitrage game, like Deribit, like uh, Binance, like uh, BitMEX, like these are companies that are clearly have huge product market fit. Why why are they um, why are they moving in that direction? And then things like Uniswap, how does that kind of play into it? Like there's clearly a market for that. Like why why is the laws of the U.S. Is, you know less U.S.'s KYC and other sort of things. Um, you know, preventing them from being successful? Yeah, well, you know, it, it depends how big you want to think, right? So some of those uh, companies that you mentioned are very successful right now, given what I think is a very small market, right? You know, crypto, the entire market is still a fraction of even one of the largest traditional companies, right? I think Bitcoin's market cap is maybe one-fifth of Apple's market cap, right? So, so yes, those companies have been very successful to a point. I think if we want to get to the next stage, it's not going to be through unregulated offshore exchanges that are, uh, you know, working in one country with a paper registration in another, uh, that say, you know, if you don't like our business, then come sue us in this tax haven or that island. You know, I don't, I don't think that that's scalable um, in the long term. Um, Very interesting because I have the opposite perspective. Okay, what's your perspective? I think that that is so scalable that it's going to overwhelm any attempt otherwise. Okay, um, look, you know, I I hesitate to make too many predictions, right? Who knows? And as I said before. All of this ultimately, I think, comes down to demand, right? If the demand is there, then um, then maybe that'll work. I view regulatory arbitrage as a euphemism for breaking the law and getting away with it. And I don't think that that works long-term. And I think that to the extent that a lot of companies have gotten away with that, particularly companies that have serviced U.S. customers or have pretended not to, while also making no effort to exclude U.S. customers. Ha the reason that they have not seen really serious enforcement actions yet is just because of how small this space is and because of how limited the resources are of enforcement agencies in the U.S. who really don't think about crypto all that much, right? We, you know, we talk about the SEC all the time. They don't think about us all that much, right? We're a very small portion of their work. And if there was real scalability in, in the way that I think you're describing, where all of a sudden a meaningful percentage of U.S. citizens have a meaningful number of assets with an offshore unregulated exchange 
where they're trading on 50x leverage and getting liquidated left and right. And oh, by the way, that insurance fund that's supposed to make them whole, it's really never going to pay anybody anything. Um, yeah, I don't think the government's going to suffer that for very long. And I, honestly, you could say it's only a matter of time. I don't know. Um, but I, I don't think that's going to get too far. But what, what it, okay, let's say BitMEX is a bad example, but these could be fantastic companies that have great customer service and fantastic loyalty. People would argue that that is Bitfinex, very much in the gray zone. Um, I don't know. Like Again, you, you have a different perspective, but my perspective on this technology is that the whole point of Ethereum DeFi is to make the new rules, right? And to like create something that lives beyond any one country's jurisdiction. Uh, so there's nothing to stop someone from running an Ethereum node and enabling someone else to process an app, you know, a financial transaction somewhere else in the world, uh, whether or not you agree or disagree with whatever country they're in, um, that, that a policy. So I don't know. I just think that y- your comments are literally like it's like the opposite of what this technology does. Well, I hear you. I think where we differ is considering the impact that the U.S. government can have on U.S. companies and U.S. citizens who I think should be using these technologies, right? I don't think that Bitcoin would benefit from the U.S. government saying that Bitcoin mining is illegal. Now, again, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just, as a hypothetical, saying I think that Bitcoin benefits from the government getting behind it and realizing, frankly, why Bitcoin is better than the system they've been operating and supporting for so long. And I think that you know this goes back to David's question earlier about whether the laws adapt to fit the technology or the technology adapts to fit the laws. And I think, honestly, it's a mix of both. So I, I agree with you. I think that if there was a non-U.S. company that was providing great customer service, that was having trouble getting regulatory approval in the US or was getting pushback from US regulators, if they're able to make the policy argument that, look, people want to use this, we're doing a good job for people, no one's losing money, everyone likes our service, then one of two things will happen. Either the government backs off of its position because ultimately the government is supposed to serve the interests of the people or the people elect politicians who will change the law to support that type of service. And that ultimately is what I think we need to do for Bitcoin and for all these DeFi projects, is to say to the government, look, this stuff is really powerful and effective. People want to use it. They should be able to use it. And you should not only allow them to, you should support them in doing so. And that's that's my view on this space. The bear the, or the, the absolute bull case for Ethereum is that we have these uh, endless numbers of fully autonomous, com- totally robotic applications like Uniswap. Um, at the end of the day, however, there have to be people that build these things that answer to some sort of legal system somewhere. And Uniswap, the Uniswap team is largely a U.S.-based team, if not all of them. Um, how does being a fully autonomous system where if you arrest for just not saying that this is going to happen, but say, say you just like arrest every single member of the Uniswap team that does nothing to the Uniswap application. How does that change uh, the relationship between the team and, and legal compliance? Um, It changes a lot and for a couple of different reasons, but let me give you at least two of them. 
Um, one is the sort of hyper-technical legal analysis um, of whether the developer of the protocol should be subject to regulation. And I, you know, I don't want to comment on Uniswap specifically, but just you know, generally speaking, uh, most of the regulations we deal with apply to companies or entities that are actively engaged in the operation of a business, right? It's either a company that is... Um, you know, in the business of performing a certain service or is facilitating that service or is operating a particular type of financial activity. Um, you know, we, we keep coming back to the uh, money transmission, the anti-money laundering laws example. Money transmitters are defined as actors that receive and transmit funds or currency. When you take that type of regulatory framework, and apply it to the developers of a protocol who no longer have control over the protocol, who are not um, required to operate it, who could disappear at any given moment and the system will keep working exactly the way it has, then the regulation by definition does not apply just as a purely legal matter. But secondly, and I always want to go back to the policy concerns because ultimately, right, the laws fit what we actually want to see in, in the space. There is actually no reason to apply regulations to a developer who cannot, by definition, comply with the regulations, right? If you don't have control over the protocol, then you can be regulated, but there's nothing you're actually going to do differently because you have no power to do anything differently. So then you end up in this really weird world where theoretically the government could say the protocol is regulated, but the people are not. And at that point, it's like, okay, what do you want? The protocol to submit a registration, the protocol to make disclosures. It's a piece of software. It can't do any of those things. So I think you have both legal and also policy reasons why these regulations don't and can't apply if you have a truly decentralized protocol. Jake, thanks so much for coming on and a answering all of our questions and uh, even putting up with uh, <laughs> my stupid objections. No. Uh, really appreciate it. Well, wait, it. hold on. Before, before we move on, I, I just want to say your objections are not stupid. And let me, let, me, um, let me mention what is maybe most important about all of this, which is this technology is not really for us in the U.S., right? I'm not that concerned about the U.S. government wrapping its mind around letting us do whatever we want with Bitcoin. There are other governments in the world that will absolutely not be okay with this technology, okay? Truly authoritarian regimes that function only because they have absolute control of the money supply or the financial system will not be okay with Bitcoin. And we've seen some of those governments, Venezuela, Iran, occasionally China, right? We hear about these countries banning Bitcoin all the time. And to them, I would say, we will not try to comply with those laws, right? No one in the space is going to try to do that. The point of this technology is to deliver financial freedom. And if there are governments that are restricting that type of financial freedom, in, in frankly, what I think of is almost um, a true expression of an American principle of, of liberty and freedom, then it's going to be too bad for them. And I do think that's what we're, we're going to continue seeing, especially as 
sovereign currencies are, uh, you know, potentially at risk because of the, the economic impact of the coronavirus. I think Bitcoin will become much more important in those types of countries. And that is where this really matters. And, and I think that that's what we should focus on more than, than anything else. So David doesn't want to end it. We're, we're going to keep going if it's okay. With All right, that. sure. Yeah, that, that, was, that was just a fake out to, to yeah, get you to I say what was right. in your heart. Sure, what's up? The, the next question I have is something along the nature of uh, Tornado Cash, right? Where Tornado Cash as an application is like specifically designed to, well, not, not specifically, but really, really enables money laundering, right? And, and I, I hate keeping on naming these very specific protocols, but like replace Tornado Cash with any coin join Wasabi. So coin yeah, joiners, Wasabi, whatever. Even Zcash shielded uh, addresses. Right. And like the entire blockchains. And so what happens like do you think that it's, it is even plausible for some regulatory agency to say like okay if you are a u.s citizen you are not allowed to use this application and if you do uh, we will do things to you is that a realistic future i think that would be very dystopian i think that's very unlikely i think that a policy like that would be very likely to uh well, it would be subject to constitutional challenge at minimum. Um, privacy is not a crime. Let's be very clear about that, right? Privacy is not a crime. We are not only allowed to have privacy, it's enshrined in the Fourth Amendment to the, to the U.S. Constitution. It's one of our most important rights. Um, in fact, even obscuring the source of funds, it's obscuring the source of ill-gotten gains, right? Making money through criminal activity and then trying to hide uh, the proceeds of that criminal activity and layer those criminal proceeds back into the financial system is money laundering. Money laundering is illegal, but obscuring the source of funds without criminal activity is not illegal. And frankly, that is how I think about something like Tornado Cash or CoinJoin. Um, it's, it's people who want to have privacy. It's people who maybe don't want everyone in the world to know who paid them and who they paid, what they bought and what they sold. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, obviously, if, you know, if a criminal wants to use that technology for money laundering, it's possible that they can do that in addition to the totally legitimate uh, and beneficial uses of that technology, just like any technology, right? If a criminal isn't interested in the technology you've built, it's probably not that interesting to start with. So I think we shouldn't be surprised to see uh, scammers and criminals trying to use this technology just like they do anything. Um, but that doesn't, I, I don't think that that justifies what would be a very overbroad policy of saying, because some criminals use this some of the time, nobody can use this any of the time. It's not what the government said about the internet, and I don't think it's what the government will say about privacy technology either. So jumping around here, um, we, we've been talking a lot about the potential frictions between blockchain systems and, and the law and jurisdictions and nation states. But there are, on the other side of things, there are plenty of reasons why we should be optimistic that um, 
centralized institutions or, or authoritative bodies uh, start to actually leverage this technology um, for their own benefit. Um, Anthony Pompliano forever talked about the, about this, where he thinks that in the future, uh, the ec- equity and, and public tra- publicly traded companies and, and all these things have to run on a blockchain. They, they're going to mandate it because of the beneficial aspects that they get from transparency and compliance. And, and it's just going to be easier to be compliant if you use a blockchain. Um, do, do you see that future unfolding? And, and is there any comments you have on that? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I mean, honestly, I don't think it's a terribly interesting use case of a blockchain but it makes sense, right? I mean, at its core, a blockchain is just a public ledger that anyone can pay uh, to put entries into. Mm-hmm. And it's probably a lot more efficient than having an entire company that's dedicated or an entire back office that's dedicated to performing that same function. Um, so, you know, the, the, the typical example is um, using a blockchain to disintermediate the DTC which is the central organization that basically manages and owns, well, not manages, but um, custodies all securities in the US, right? So if you own shares of a company, actually the DTC has the share and you have a claim on it through your broker. There's no reason, I suppose, why we shouldn't replace that with tokens on a blockchain. Um, you know, it takes two days to settle securities transactions and it's very expensive and, you know, very inefficient. It would be better to do that on a blockchain. I just don't think it's particularly interesting if that makes sense. Um, but yes, I suppose you can, you can eke out some efficiency and make some, uh, some broker dealers a little bit more money, (laughs) increase their margin a little bit by, by automating their back office in that way. Blockchains are about money. Do you agree with I that? I do agree with that. Yes. Money or value? Well, I guess valuable assets. If you, if you had to pick one. And I do think that, mm-hmm. you know, there are perhaps new types of assets that you can, you can, um, that you can create and use with a blockchain that you couldn't otherwise. But ultimately, mm-hmm. I, no, I think the core mission here is about money. It's about programmable money. How much you want to be able to program your money is an open question. I think that's the rift between between Bitcoiners and Ethereans is how much programmability do you want at what cost in terms of trust minimization. But yeah, ultimately, I, I mean, I think money mm-hmm. is by far the most interesting and important use case here. Well, one last question. Uh, so taking off your lawyer hat and putting on your, your, your crypto cypherpunk hat, uh, what are you excited about uh, coming up in the next you know, one month to three years about crypto? I'm excited to see more connection between Bitcoin and DeFi. I think, and we're st- actually just today, there was a, a pretty cool announcement about an investment. You guys mentioned Pomp uh, invested in a company called Atomic Loans that's trying to do Bitcoin-backed uh, well, they're calling it lending. That's a whole other conversation. But they're trying to do Bitcoin-backed borrowing of uh, stable coins on Ethereum. I think that's a really interesting sign that Bitcoiners are getting a little bit more comfortable with the idea that we can decentralize more than just base money. Um, I, I would love it if we could do more DeFi on Bitcoin without 
without having to connect Bitcoin and Ethereum. But I think that's what excites me the most is opening up the horizons a little bit uh, in, in Bitcoiners' minds. And I know there are a lot who may listen to this who will completely disagree with what I'm saying, and that's fine too. Um, but I think that's what's most exciting is, is building out a, a new financial system as opposed to just a new money. Jake, I want to thank you for coming on POV Crypto. Uh, me and CK are, are huge fans of you, and so it's awesome to, to get you on here and, and to get your, your thoughts out in the wild. Yeah, this was great. Uh, thanks for having me. You guys, you can find the show at POV Crypto Pod. Jake, you did not disappoint me with your answer. Bitcoin, Ethereum is a Bitcoin side chain as far as I'm concerned. So getting Bitcoin into DeFi is great. Also, the having quantitative tightening in real life, uh, that's pretty exciting in the next couple months here too. Peace. Bye. Oh, oh.